Are you recording it? <laughs> yes, actually. Yeah. Oh, good. You can include that as a sound button. <laughs> Forgotten how to do up a shirt. Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and learn what science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and in this episode, I'm joined by invertebrate zoologist, evolutionary biologist, and natural historian, Dr. Greg Holwell. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. It's good to be here, James. <laughs> we should have a bit of a, a disclosure at the beginning of this, that we, we've been doing this together for a while. There might be a lot of in-jokes and uh, yes. had-to-be-there stories. Yeah, I, I, I suspect a lot of what you're about to listen to, listeners, is... <laughs> gonna not make much sense but that's okay <laughs> uh speaking of a uh, uh, black magic wolf hound was the other one <laughs> <laughs> sorry no yeah, yeah that's a new joke one. all right yeah in joke everybody black magic wolf hound yeah <laughs> but uh you know, our, our history goes back to me being a student and, and you taking me on as an undergrad student so it really it's your fault that, that i'm here oh. doing this and since then you've Gone on to supervise a small army of students in Australia and New Zealand. How does that feel being a mentor to so many people? Is that a big responsibility? It's. It depends on the day. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it really does feel like a a, uh, a responsibility. Sometimes I kind of feel like there's a whole lot of young scientists that are still trying to figure out where they're going and. I look at what I'm supposed to be doing, being their supervisor, and feel like, oh, am I really qualified for this? <laughs> um, but sometimes it just all feels very easy too, because you know most of my students, the vast majority, have been you know, great people to work with, you know, mm. really, really nice people that are just easy to talk to, and they've got their great ideas, and they, unlike me, follow through with most of them. And um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's 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 been an easy process. So, yeah. yeah. Yep. I mean, do you find yourself in situations where you have to decide, all right, at this point, do I give academic advice or do I give life advice? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, and sometimes it's the same advice. You know, sometimes basically the right academic advice is probably good life advice as well, but sometimes I guess it's, they might be at cross purposes. Um, yeah, definitely. You, you do, when you're supervising students i guess you do have to kind of make that call about how much you're going to know about their personal lives or where they want to go and all that sort of stuff mm. but i guess in terms of personal issues i don't necessarily always get too involved but in terms of life advice thinking about career and what are the right things that they could be doing right now to improve career options and choices and all that sort of thing mm. then yeah that's that happens happens quite a lot um yeah, depends on whether the student wants that advice from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then when you're giving you know, this research advice, I mean, how much input do you have as a scientist to, say, do things this way? Or are you at a point now where you can just say to students, go bananas, run for it? <laughs> yeah, I, I prefer the, the second option, you know, I think because I was very lucky to go through the same that same kind of process as well where my supervisor Mariella Herberstein really kind of let me just take take my own interest take my own project in whatever direction it was going to lead and so I very much prefer to let let my students particularly at the PhD level 
to mm. do that, you know, take, get an idea, run with it. If they've got something cool they'd like to try, then give it a try. Even if I might have suspicions that it's not going to work, you know, I think mm. part of that process is trying things out and um, and having them fail and then thinking about why they did. And, mm. and that's, that's all completely fine. And I think it leads to better long-term scientists if they do things that way. If you have to really tell a student everything that they have to do mm. <laughs> along along the way, every sort of step and prompt every step, then they're going to leave at the end of their PhD and they're going to need that from the mm. next person they work with and on and on. And when you actually get your own position, whether it's um, an academic position or whether it's your own fellowship or whether you're working in industry, then after the PhD, you're probably going to be in a position where you, you're going to have to start making those calls yourself mm. so yeah i think students where they do really need that hand holding too much are probably not cut out for independent projects anyway and i'm not trying to put people off <laughs> <laughs> i guess i'm just trying to say that you know it's, it's not it's, there's nothing wrong with just having some crazy ideas and following them through mm. Have you ever had to use the phrase, welcome to the school of hard knocks, whenever you're, you're, um, you're teaching you, people? I think you used that on me as your supervisor, so... <laughs> this is what you're getting into, Greg. This is what you're getting into if you're going to supervise me. School of hard knocks. <laughs> yeah, but it, it is a bit like that. But science is something that each individual person is their own little mini business. Yeah, you can be a big team of researchers, but really everyone has their own thing they're working on. And we, we just heard your presentation here at the this entomology conference we're at, where you're doing your presentation, which, I mean, like lots of senior researchers, you're presenting on your students' research a lot of the time. Mm. Do you get to do your own research much now? <laughs> what's what's ahead of me here? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, well, some some people do when they really they really protect that, and I guess they're the ones they're the ones who who really love the nitty gritty of the doing of the science and the experiments and collecting the data and analysing the data and all that sort of stuff. Um, some people, which is probably more like me, tend to <laughs> a jet ski. Mo motorbike in the distance there. <laughs> some, yeah, I think some people in academic positions, uh, like me and a lot of people, I think find that they've got less and less time where they're doing their own research. And most of the research they do is, is vicariously through their students. Hmm. And I don't mind that because the, for me, the, the most interesting parts of science is coming up with ideas and mm. coming up with ways in which you might do something or answer a question um, and exploring, making some first off sort of basic observations of cool stuff out there in the natural world, whether you've found some insect that looks really amazing and you're wondering what's going on, or you've read some little very brief anecdote about some local species that sounds really interesting, but nobody's followed it up. Now, those sorts of things are the, bit, the part of science that I really enjoy the most, is then letting my imagination kind of think about where, um, what sort of questions you could ask, how that taps into evolutionary or behavioural ecological theory, and, you know, how you can actually make a contribution to knowledge as well as uncover some nice, cool natural history. Um, and then I also enjoy kind of the process of wrapping things up and the writing and, mm. and that sort of side of things. So as a person who doesn't act actually do that much of their own research 
most of what I do is vicariously through students, then I still get to enjoy those two things. Mm. I get involved in the initial planning and I get involved in the wrapping things up and the writing. Um, and I let the students kind of really take it away in the mm. middle process of the doing the science and trying things out and coming up with other things. Mm. So, yeah, I, I really like that. It doesn't worry me. Um, I know some people kind of really love just being being part of the research all the way through mm. um, and they really try to protect that so that they can actively be doing their own research in the lab or in the field or whatever. And um, and that's great. I think a lot of the time they can do that. you just got to make that decision mm. and protect that time. Yeah. Mm. And so you have the your whole well lab now over at the University yeah. of Auckland. Uh, was that a, a, a tough call to make, naming the lab after yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, yeah, we did kind of all sit down and think about various options. Um, and I think, I don't know whether it was even me that sort of decided. I, I think it probably was, but various people were sort of various other people in the group were sort of saying it's probably the easiest way for other people to identify yeah. to track me down online and that sort of thing <laughs> but it's also because we work in all sorts of different things yeah. so it's not like I can call myself the the giraffe weevil lab because <laughs> one thing that's going on in our lab um, mm. it's not like I, we can call it the one particular question lab or yeah it's and I think there are too many labs out there that are just called the the behavioural ecology lab or something. It's like nobody's going to know yeah. <laughs> who's behind that lab. So and you see the students that graduate from the behavioural ecology lab and then go on to form their own ecology of behaviour lab. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> every, every iteration. Um, yeah. So as much as it seems like um, self-aggrandisement, I think just calling it whole lab was probably the easiest yeah. option. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we should should point out that there's actually a in-situ science video on our YouTube channel about your lab and, and what they do, so people can check that out. But uh, why don't we, we get into it here? Mm. Do you work on New Zealand invertebrates and, and uh, uh, discuss? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So being in New Zealand, I got started working on some New Zealand invertebrates. So, yeah, I think when I first got there, I was a little bit disappointed in the lack of praying mantises that we have there in New Zealand because <laughs> that was what I was working on in Australia. We only have two species there and one of them shouldn't be there. Um, <laughs> I've maintained that interest and the mantises are still amazing. They're very, mm. very cool. Um, but I certainly had to diversify. Um, and I enjoyed diversifying because there's lots of really cool stuff there in, in New Zealand. And there's a few really good behavioral ecologists in New Zealand, but the amount and the number of really cool species out there in New Zealand far surpassed that and there were all sorts of groups that nobody had explored and lots of really cool natural history to follow up on. Um, so yeah, no, I was I was pretty excited when I arrived to discover how many cool things were on the doorstep that nobody knew anything about. Mm. Um, and that's generally been my approach is to get out into the bush and wander around and find things and look at what they're doing and mm. let my let myself, let my imagination kind of go crazy coming yeah. up with ways in which I might answer the questions that come yeah. to my mind. I mean, it must have been tough, kind of almost starting from scratch with the actual systems you work on moving from Australia to New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, it was in some respects because I'd kind of developed up the Shulfina praying mantids that I worked on in mm. Australia to a nice level where if I'd have stayed in Australia I would have kept working on them until now and I probably would have asked all sorts of 
extra really cool questions about them too uh, and enjoyed that but to be honest um it's that initial discovery that excites me the most mm. i think i don't know if i could work on one particular system for my life the way that other people do other people do it that way and it's and they do it incredibly successfully and very well and they take a system that they begin with early on in their career and they're still working on it 30 or 40 years later and they're asking some really complex and detailed mechanistic kind of questions and i think that's great that people do that but my general approach is that i prefer taking a question that i find interesting and applying it to a suite of different groups very different groups to see where the variation lies mm. um, so yeah i've really enjoyed just starting off with one group getting interested in it having a student work on them and then kind of putting my mind to another group and thinking mm. about what's interesting about them and then moving on um, it's probably just having a poor attention span <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to be more more complimentary about it. So <laughs> that well, you know, the flag that you always fly is the importance of sheer natural history and observations, and actually just getting out there and, and seeing things, yeah. as opposed to the push for yeah. the the big high impact research questions sort of stuff. Hmm. But it sounds like that's not necessarily you know, something you have to make effort to do. It's just what you enjoy, and that's how it works. Yeah, I, for, for me, it's what I enjoy, and so that's what I do. And maybe, maybe other people would find that difficult, jumping from one system to another. But for me, it's just what I've always enjoyed. But I also, like you, like you suggested, it's something that I've kind of advocated for. It's mm. starting with natural history and starting with making observations of the natural world because all of our science really should start there it mm. should start with an observation it shouldn't begin with a big question that you've got in your mind and then you search for a species in which you can apply that question because mm. it could end up that the question and the, and the species don't match together very well and it mm. doesn't make any sense so for me it's always started off with the species i get out and watch them see what they're up to I try to find out what's known about them, and then I, if there's any questions that come to mind, um, then I think about how how we could turn that into a project, how that might work as a master's project or a mm. PhD project or a grant proposal, um, and that's what I've always enjoyed. But I also feel like feel quite strongly that it's important to do that. Um, mm. Yeah, that starting point of observation, come up with a hypothesis then develop a way to test that hypothesis mm. um, whereas i think perhaps some students might come through with the idea that you're kind of starting with your hypotheses and questions and then whatever animal walks past next you apply it to that <laughs> I, don't know, I think it's one of those things that everybody knows is important but the practicalities of doing it in you know, the current scientific environment are challenging when it is about publish or perish and your your currency is or your data sets mm. how much time does making these fortuitous observations take up and and is it a is it something we can still do as scientists i'm i'm very lucky to be in a in an academic position where i can where it's part of my job um that i have that academic freedom to do research on the topics that interest me mm. um 
so yes, I am in that fortunate position and some students might think, oh, but it takes so long to get to that point. Um, you know, is that is that ever going to happen? But mm. I don't know. I, I tend to have noticed that the people who have done that for their postgraduate study, who have started off with something new and unknown and developed it, and had some successes and some failures and they've followed the successes and they've developed those further and they almost inevitably come up with some really cool results that get published you know not necessarily in science or nature but they get published in good places like behavioral mm. ecology and um journal of evolutionary biology and mm. american naturalist and places like that and I think within the scope of a PhD, that's a place where you really can do that. You do actually have three or four years to to explore something and, and take it in its natural direction. And I really do feel that those students who have done that have actually made a real success of it. And most of them that I know have uh, are still still kicking on. You know, they're mm. still they're still successfully doing postdocs, or they've got their own positions now. Um, and they're still doing what they do. I think there's obvious, it's, it's obviously possible to make a successful career on a well-established model system and mm. working on one particular sub-question within a lab group. People make successful careers from that starting point as well. But I definitely don't think that it's a dead-end road if you start off your PhD working on something unknown and mm. something that you just find fascinating. I mean, I feel like it's... For society, it's got to be better to to go into the unknown stuff. You know, if you keep working on the one system, yeah, you're going to have much more in-depth information about a cricket song or whatever you're working on. But if you you do what I like to call uh, the intellectual equivalent of sailing into uncharted waters, that's where you're going to find the big sort of paradigm-shifting discoveries. It's where you're going to find things that don't play by the rules as we understand them, right? Yeah, ab ab absolutely. You know, I think you can test you can test evolutionary theory or ecological theory or behavioral theory by teasing apart mechanisms further and further in one system, or you can test them by applying the same ideas across multiple systems. And if one of those systems gives you a very different answer, well, then it's that's really cool. You, know, mm. you can then follow up. Why is why is something different going on with that group? Mm. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Going into that uncharted waters is probably more likely to give you a um, give you a surprise answer, something mm. that you weren't expecting, and something that you can then get out and talk to the media about and share mm. with the public, and the public will share your enthusiasm for it too, because the other thing that I'm really quite passionate about at the moment is I think that doing this natural history work and putting it into a context of um, putting it into an eco ecological or evolutionary context, but really focusing it around these fascinating examples of natural history, then by doing that and by sharing that with the public, you're actually, it's not so much about, you know, letting the taxpayers know about <laughs> about <laughs> what what scientists do it's more for me it's more about letting the public know that the natural world is a fascinating place mm. and it's it's almost the equivalent of sort of the liberal arts really it's like <laughs> You know, it's like discovering something interesting about medieval history or discovering something interesting about 
you know, ancient Egypt or, you know, it's, it's something that's amazing about the world and anybody in the public can look at that new piece of information and think, oh, wow, that's cool. Mm. And if every little natural history story that we come up with gets shared with the public and the public can read it in a tweet or read it on a blog or see an article in New Scientist or, or in, the, in the Herald or wherever, and even if it's so much just even if it's just by reading that article, they kind of go, huh, isn't that interesting? You know, that's, <laughs> you're giving them a burst of positivity in their day. And I yeah. think that's a, you know, I think that's a, a really worthwhile cause. So. Yeah, I mean, I can already imagine people listening to this and breaking out into cold sweats at that idea. Because, <laughs> we're, we're, I mean, we're trained to show how our discoveries can be applied mm. in some way. Is is that misguided? Is <laughs> there's there's no doubt that applying science to solving the world's problems, environmental problems, economic problems, um, is valuable. Nobody would doubt that. So you mm. don't need to convince anybody that that's important. But I think we still do have to convince people that finding out more about the natural world, just simply because. It's an amazing place. Mm. Is this something that we still feel like we have to convince people of? Mm. Whereas I just, I don't kind of understand. I don't, I don't see um, what the problem is there. And in fact, I think that if you're sharing your fascination with nature, with the public, then you're going to improve their fascination with nature mm. and in many ways that's kind of, isn't that kind of performing like a public service or almost yeah. a psychological service <laughs> making people <laughs> make, making people think that the world's a good place yeah despite the first five paper pages of the newspaper looking pretty sad and negative they get to page six <laughs> and they see your story about harvestmen or <laughs> orchid mantises <laughs> or whatever that they might read it cheers them up, you know. I think that's a good thing. I wonder if it's simply the fact that at the moment it's not in vogue. Mm. The idea that you know natural history information is important for humanity. I think at the moment, in in the science communication circles, there's lots of push for things like uh, astrophysics and atomic physics and finding out the the building blocks of the universe. And mm. the justification for that is usually well this. This is what makes us us. This is what makes us exist and what makes mm. the universe special. Surely the same can be said for natural history. It puts us in the context of a broader universe, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you hone into just even the human angle, I think I don't think there's a huge amount of justification required for people to study archaeology or history or those sorts of things as well because people who kind of say, oh, yeah, it's part of what makes us who we are, you know, it's mm. part of our history. But natural history is part of that as well. Finding out more about the diverse life around us is that's the environment that we're in. And it's amazing. So <laughs> And some of the natural history discoveries you've made by chance happen to have had applied yes. roles. And I know the the Primanda story is one of those where you 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 could probably tell it better than me. You're looking at the mating behaviors of your native New Zealand mantis and the non-native one. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, basically just by being interested in our um, 
in the two species of praying mantises that are in New Zealand, one invasive, one native, and just looking at their mating behaviour and the fact that the invasive species, Meomantis caffra, a South African species, that one is sexually cannibalistic. Females will eat the males a huge percentage of the time, 60% of the time females eat the males and the males don't even get to mate. So they're incredibly aggressive. The native species of praying mantis in New Zealand isn't sexually cannibalistic. Um, much less Females are much less aggressive. Mating behaviour is fairly standard. Um, but what we discovered was that the male native New Zealand praying mantis was attracted to the sex pheromones of the invasive South African praying mantis, the females, and when they got there, they were clearly the wrong species. Mm. But the female South African mantises were perfectly happy to, to eat them. Um, <laughs> and, and those male native mantises were getting eaten um, you know, 90% of the time when they encountered the female South African mm. mantises. So those males were being taken out of the population. They were more attracted to the sex pheromones of the South African mantis than they were to the females of their own species. Oh. Sounds weird, but that's <laughs> what was happening. And um, that kind of actually, for me, that really provided an interesting mechanism and a very likely mechanism for why we're seeing strong decline in the numbers of the native praying mantises in New Zealand compared to the South African ones. The South African ones are now spreading right across the country. The native praying mantises we're seeing far fewer of. Mm. And lots of people have been concerned about that for a little while, even the general public. Um, but everybody just assumed it was just competition, like mm. ecological competition, that the South African ones were doing better and... Mm out-competing them in their environment for food and for habitats. But I really think that this um, aspect of a behavioural interaction between the two species is probably more likely to have led to that, to the pattern that we're seeing of decline. Mm. You've got the introduced species literally eating the the native species. Surely that's a, a perfect system for a place like New Zealand that has lots of issues with invasive species where you've got this information early on could potentially do something with it <laughs> yeah i mean as you know I, most of my interest is just in that in the in the area of just the basics of their behavior and their natural history and i find that fascinating in itself but it's we're certainly in a position now where we could explore a lot further mm. whether this interaction is behind the um the effect that we're seeing of a decline in the natives and if there's anybody out there listening who wants to <laughs> follow follow that question up yeah. and please come along because I think that would be a great applied conservation angle towards the um, the interesting behavior that we've already discovered. Mm. And so this interest in mating systems and reproduction has now spawned this new area of interest for you, which is weaponry. What what sort of weapons do animals have? What are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always was kind of fascinated with the way that males fight with one another over access to females. It's just a big part of mating systems and um, you know, and you can you can see it right across the animal kingdom, looking at deer, looking at beetles, looking at um, flies and marine groups. It happens all over the place. Males fight a lot when they um, when they get together and it's usually over females. But something in the animal kingdom that is not ubiquitous but prop crops up in lots of different groups is the possession of really exaggerated weapons that the males have and they all use these weapons to fight with one another over females but often these weapons are exaggerated beyond the size that you would expect that they need to be they just mm. seem ridiculously big 
Um, and I really got started getting interested in weaponry um, with the work that Chrissy Painting uh, did during her PhD with me. She really took the New Zealand giraffe weevil, um, which was a virtually unstudied species, um, and she took that starting point of not knowing much about them right through to them becoming this fantastic system for looking at the evolution of animal weaponry. And these giraffe weevils, it's the same, it's this classic situation of an exaggerated weapon in the males. They have this elongated rostrum. I think you've talked to Chrissy on this podcast, haven't you? She's probably told you. Yeah. Yeah. Episode 14 or so. I don't have no Excellent. idea, but yeah. Right. Everybody cross now. <laughs> Press pause. Go straight across to episode 14. Um, yeah, so I won't tell you too much, but that really kind of got me interested in animal weaponry generally. And I started f sort of finding that right across a variety of different New Zealand groups, Males have these exaggerated structures. We see them in uh, Cambridgia sheetweb spiders. And Leilani Walker's done her PhD with me and kind of uncovered what's going on with these really exaggerated jaws that the mm. males have. Um, and uh, Murray Fee has been working on his PhD with me looking at cave wetter, these really big uh, New Zealand equivalent of crickets that we have living in caves. And these are huge. These are um, crickets that if you measure from the tip of the antenna down to the tip of the hind leg can be about 30 or 35 <laughs> centimetres long. They're enormous things and they're in big aggregations on the ceilings of caves when you wander around in New Zealand caves. Um, and they're using these big hind legs that the males have to fight with. And most recently I've become really excited about these harvestmen that We've been working on and we've been lucky enough to get some funding to work on them and Chrissy is now continuing to work on those harvestmen and Erin Powell um, is my relatively recent PhD student who's working on those as well and they're just an extraordinary group and they probably the males probably have the most exaggerated weapons in the animal kingdom for their body size mm. um, the, the jaws, the chelicerae that are exaggerated, and they're just enormous. If you actually um, take a dead specimen and you cut the jaws off and weigh them, the jaws weigh more than the rest of the body put together. So, so the, the jaws are like an extra pair of arms almost sticking out the front of their heads. It's, it's how big yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah, they just unfold. The, some of them are really long and they look like a construction crane, and some of them are big and broad and they look like just massive inflated kind of boxing gloves. And But <laughs> The fact that they weigh more than the rest of the body, it's like imagining, <laughs> imagining taking another human and holding them, holding them in your mouth and then fighting and whacking another with dude them. with it. <laughs> Pretty much. So this is just outrageous levels of exaggeration and to try to figure out how they're using them to fight one another and why they've become so massive and why they're so diverse from one species to the next is kind of the topic of our research for the next few years. Mm. And um, I can chat with you again in a few years about what we figure <laughs> out, but they just have to be incredibly costly. And that's what Erin's going to be looking at is the sort of the costs associated with burying such a big weapon. Mm. But, you know, you, you see them in the wild and you go to pick one up and it starts trying to get away from you and it trips over itself and it's, they're, they're really struggling to even just, <laughs> even just hold these things, hold their jaws in front of themselves. I mean, so, are, are they fighting for territories or fighting for a female that's there at the time? It's really hard to tell at this stage. Most of these big weapons evolve in 
other groups of animals where there is a resource that the males defend yeah. and like a, a buck, big buck deer would have his little stomping ground or his group yeah. of females and stuff yeah exactly like yeah like a big a, yeah big deer male deer will yeah defend a group of females um or a big male dung beetle will defend a big patch of dung from other males and chase mm. them off and the females that come along lay their eggs in that dung um here it's really difficult to tell what's going on because sometimes they seem to kind of be all a little bit aggregated around an area like a tree trunk covered with moss sometimes you just see them quite um diffusely spread around the environment you just seem to get one in every 10 trees there's a harvestman there so we really don't know whether it's resource defense or female defense or some kind of combination of the two at this stage um yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll get some answers to, to that soon. And you're, I guess, falling into line with the fascination with unknown things in natural history. You tend to work on animals and systems that nobody's ever worked on before. I mean, I've done a similar thing, and I'm undecided as to whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, there's... <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's, I don't know, there's less papers to catch up on before you start sort of thing and, and less people to argue with you at That's conferences. Right. But then you have to start from absolute scratch, yeah. right? Yeah, you, you definitely do. Um, it's the kind of thing, I guess, if we go back to what we were talking about before, about P how you can do that in a PhD project. I think it's the kind of thing that you can do in a PhD project nicely. Mm. Um, I think it's the kind of thing that you can definitely do when you've got a permanent position and you're, you're lucky like like me um that's i'm very grateful for that um possibly that point in between those sort of postdoc years it might be more challenging so to, the position i'm in you mean? <laughs> i wasn't going to say that i was going to let you let you connect the dots <laughs> no but it's well i guess it's the kind of thing where it, the time frame probably is important there so if you find yourself in a position where you've got a few years, then there's probably no reason why you can't continue to use that approach. Mm. But if you're going into a scenario where you're not sure of the length of your 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 funding situation, might be a year or two here or there, it might be a bit more challenging. And a lot of the time postdoc scenarios are when you are stepping into an existing postdoctoral position with a question in mind and all mm. that kind of stuff. Um and I guess I don't really know how it works with funding bodies that fund fellowships um, and whether or not reviewers of fellowship applications are looking for questions that build on existing knowledge or mm. whether they are happy to fund people with their own interesting idea to see where it goes. Um, it probably really depends from one, one funding source to the next. Mm. Uh, how comfortable they are with that. If I was a reviewer and I had a fellowship application that was taking an unknown system and exploring it because it, there was a great question that came to mind from that, the basic natural history of that species, then I'd, I'd love it. Um, mm. But other people might not feel that way because of the uncertainty as to where it might go. Yeah, I guess it is a strange position, the postdoc one, because you're you're applying not just for funding to do the research, but funding to pay your own salary yeah, sort of thing, which is a, is a lot more than the research funds in a lot of the time. Yeah, I almost get the impression that it's not so much about doing 
um, working on a, a system that's been worked on before, but I almost feel like I have to have done the research before I apply for the grant. They, they want to see <laughs> pilot <coughs> studies. They want to see the ultimate feasibility of this mm. and have make sure their investment's going to be a sure bet, which is never the case in science. No, you're right. And if they're after a proof of principle mm. in, our, in our general field, then they're probably only going to get applications from people wanting to do stuff that's, I don't know, a little bit uninspiring. <laughs> because they're going to get people sort of doing things that has already been done many times before in other groups or mm. something along those lines. And I don't know whether that's necessarily what they're after. But, yeah, I, it's it's difficult to know how to fit it in with those different career stages. But I think, I think if you can come up with a great question and sort of an unanswered question in the general theory of your field, your area of behavioral, ecological or evolutionary um, biology, and there's an unstudied system that has some feature that makes it exactly the right choice to mm. answer that question, then I don't think it, it's as quite as difficult to convince people as you might think. I think a lot of the time they might be looking through a whole bunch of grant applications, fellowship applications, and if everybody's saying that they're going to work on model system A, model system B, and then mm. they come across yours and you're working on non-model system amazing looking thing that they've never <laughs> seen before, <laughs> then it'll probably capture their interest pretty mm. early on. And if you can back that up with a great question and justify your choice of that system, even though we don't know anything about it, then I know I would be convinced. Mm. I and I suspect that a lot of other people would be too. And the sort of animals you work on are these amazing looking outlier <laughs> sort of things. Yeah. And you're also working on you know, aggressive males and reproduction and genital morphology and all that sort of stuff. I wanted to ask what your relationship with, with popular science is. <laughs> How do, do you ever have to temper the, uh, the innuendo or the... the <laughs> How does popular science sell your research? Jim, what I... <laughs> That's an interesting one because, yeah, I mean, you're looking at male genital morphology and, you know, for example, one of the groups of moths that I've worked on, males have these have this pouch full of sharp spines that when they mate with females, they eject them and embed them into the reproductive tracts of females when they mate. And these, yep. are, these, <laughs> these are these delightful, lovely looking little moths that you would look at and think, oh, aren't they sweet? But mm. then they have this rather sinister mating behavior. Um, so when you've got stories like that, you can actually play the straight man. You don't have to... <laughs> You can just tell the story as it is, All right, and yeah. everybody kind of goes, "Whoa!" Um, <laughs> you don't have, you don't actually have to throw genital jokes and <laughs> things like that into your story. Yeah. Um, if the media wishes to play it that way, they can. Yeah, uh, I don't try to stop them. Um, but I've yeah, it's the same with when I talk about that stuff in lectures. Mm. When I lecture about these topics, the students are just looking either completely freaked out or laughing their heads off about these little <laughs> snippets of interesting biology but i don't ham it up i don't <laughs> joke about it i just i just tell it like it is and yeah. then people can be amazed at 
what what's there. Yeah. I guess I just assumed that, like journalists would always go for the you know, bigger is not always better sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> lazy headlines sort of things. You know, yeah, it's exactly. not the size; it's how you use it. That sort of absolutely. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like every every when I <laughs> when I was a kid, I did work experience at Melbourne Zoo, and the uh, the seal enclosure had a little folder of media articles related to their seals at the mm. zoo and nine out of ten of the articles was called seal of approval <laughs> so yeah you're you're always gonna, <laughs> you're always gonna um yeah you're always gonna get those uh <laughs> the journalists that decide to use those hammy kind of yeah. phrases and you don't need to use them if they're going to choose to then that's fine but yeah, you can actually play it pretty straight. And I think I, I think you're right. I think the stuff that I do does make people kind of go, whoa, or wow, or <laughs> Because it's, <laughs> it's enormous weapons and it's crazy genitals and it's, um, it's, it's stuff that people are going to, you know, stop what they're... <laughs> spit out their conflicts gonna, spit out their conflicts they're gonna, they're reading the, <laughs> when they're reading the newspaper in the morning so. <laughs> but not that I've had not that I've had a huge amount of media focus on this stuff I'm, I'm actually not very good at out at reaching out <laughs> at my outreach so thank you for the opportunity to <laughs> no talk, worries, talk Craig. on in situ science <laughs> might, might prompt, prompt a change in my approach <laughs> You get a taste of the limelight. And yeah. So where you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we, if people want to, I guess, see these critters, I guess they should go to that video. Yes. It's on the Institute of Science YouTube channel where Absolutely. we show giraffe weevils and the uh, spiders and the, yeah, spiders. there's a harvestman shot in there, that sort of stuff. Yep. And they can also go to the uh, Hullwell Lab website. Yep. Which is just greghullwell.com. Mm. Easy to remember. There's an L in there. It's not Howl. Okay. There's three L's. There's Weird. You're right, actually. I should spell it out. G-R-E-G-H-O-L-W-E-L-L.com. That's it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Greg. You're very welcome, James. It's been a, been a pleasure. <laughs> well, we'll do it again sometime. Yeah. It'll be good. <laughs> And thanks you guys for listening. Uh, you can check out the In-Situ Science website at in We're on Facebook, Twitter, and we now have a brand new Instagram page. And hopefully there's going to be lots of cool stuff going on there. I know, right? So contemporary. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>